while Barb was playing there just for a moment, I felt like the Lord was saying to us that He wants to create space in our lives. He wants to open up some space. And we are so busy. And we go running from one thing to the next, and we run so hard and so fast. Even getting here tonight, my guess is that not more than one, probably several of you barely got here after a long day of stuff going on. Oh, gotta get there, gotta get there, gotta be on time. And, and then you come into this barn, and somehow we're supposed to immediately settle down and hear from the Lord. And if we're ever to truly hear from the Lord, if we're to do what I believe He's called this fellowship to do by way of bringing the gospel, to this area of the world, we're going to have to start listening. And we're going to have to have more space in our lives to know that this is what the Lord would have. I'm reading an amazing book you're going to hear a lot about, I'm sure, over the next few weeks, called The Heavenly Man, about Brother Yun, the Chinese um, house church. He's not even a pastor. He just calls himself Brother. And his involvement in the Chinese house church movement from the 80s and 90s and on up to present day. In and out of prison four times because of this. And he says when people in the West ask him about his trials and his difficulties and his prison experiences, he says those were some of the best times in his life because he could do nothing but rely on Jesus. He had literally nothing. All he could do was get beat, and often. And then the food would come, rarely. And then he'd get beat some more. He talked about a friend of his carrying him because his legs were broken from one of the beatings, having to carry him to the next interrogation session. But his friend was a believer also, and in that about five or ten minutes that the friend carried him from his cell to the interrogation where he was going to be beaten, he said those five minutes were precious fellowship time that he looked forward to every day. See, now that's a different perspective than we have in our very easy, plush American church. It's called The Heavenly Man. I highly recommend it. It will rattle some of your thinking. It did mine. Um, but I highly recommend it. The heavenly man. Well, let's open our Bibles to Proverbs 6. <coughs> and there's more to come on this, I'm convinced. But this idea of, of just making some space, of pausing and listening. And I think it's uh, something we need to practice. I'm not uh, inviting you all to get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> I'm not asking you to live a monastic life. Um, But again, if we are going to do what God is calling this fellowship to do by way of bringing the gospel to a lost world, we're going to have to listen. And listen more than than we do right now. I invite you to continue listening. We are now in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. And tonight we rejoin Solomon who as a parent is admonishing his sons with words of wisdom. Proverbs is much bigger than that. But that's the, the, the practical upshot is Solomon's writing down the wisdom that's been given to him by the Lord to encourage and to teach his own sons. And we are blessed. In fact, you know, what, was, what would it be? 3,000 years of people have been blessed by these Proverbs, by these words of wisdom. And while some of the Proverbs are met with a very ready, Amen! And many of them we read nodding our heads, oh yeah, that's good advice, oh yeah, I understand that. There are many Proverbs, you may run across one or two tonight, where rather than a cry of amen, there's more of a thoughtful, hmm, wow, that's different than what I've done. 
or that's different than I would have thought. And I invite you to be open to those and remember that the wisdom in this book does not come from earth below. It is wisdom from above. And James writes in James chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. James describes a kind of wisdom that is arrogant and bombastic. The kind of wisdom that says, I am a well-learned man. I'm a scholarly woman. The kind of wisdom that, that we think we gain by our hard work and discipline. James says, if there's arrogance about that, if there's jealousy roused up by it, that's not wisdom. At least not wisdom from above. That's wisdom from below. And he goes on in verse 17 to say, but the wisdom from above is first, it's pure. And then it's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness, get that, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now Solomon's name means peace. And so this man whose name is peace is sowing the seeds and the seeds are wisdom. But the seeds of wisdom do something. They produce something in us. And that something is righteousness. When wisdom, godly wisdom, wisdom from above is sown into the field of our hearts, the produce, the fruit of that is going to be righteousness. Let me just read something to you over in Proverbs chapter 11. We're told in verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 5, he says, The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way. Verse 6, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them. Verse 8, The righteous is delivered from trouble. Latter half of verse 9, Through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Verse 10, When it goes well with the righteous, the whole city rejoices. Down in verse 18, He who sows righteousness gets a true reward. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. Verse 19. Down in verse 20. The blameless in their walk are his delight. Now at the end of verse 21. The descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Verse 23. The desire of the righteous is only good. Verse 28, latter half. The righteous will flourish like the green leaf. In verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he who is wise wins souls. Remember that verse. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks. He who is wise wins souls. In verse 31, the righteous will be rewarded in the earth. So righteousness. Who here among us wants righteousness? So that's a good thing. Righteousness is a good thing. It is not a church thing. It is not a religious thing. Righteousness is what God offers. It's what He desires for you. It's what He desires for me. It's what He would cultivate in us. And so as we go through and study these words of wisdom, these are seeds being planted in our hearts that if we are doers of the Word as well as hearers of the Word, they will produce righteous behavior in us. They will make us more righteous. Now, tonight we're going to cover five or six acres here of the heart. 
Solomon's sowing this wisdom to produce righteousness in the field. Now, as we begin in chapter 6, verse 1, let me begin with asking you a question, and that is, who doesn't want to be generous? Who wants to be a stingy old miser? Anyone? Just want to check. Okay, good. And this is going to apply to you all really well. Generosity is where we begin. Generosity is of great value, especially among followers of Jesus, right? Are we not called to be generous people? But there are wise parameters for giving to others in need, and that's where we begin. Verse 1, My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, that is a cosigner or a financial sponsor, if you become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor, beg of your neighbor, basically. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. With these words, Solomon lays out what I would call, number one if you're a note taker, the extrication of lending. The extrication of lending. He says to his sons, if you are bound up in a financial agreement with someone else, extricate yourself. Get out. Don't even wait to go to sleep. You go to that person and you figure a way to unleash yourself or to loose yourself from that financial agreement. What? Why? Well, listen, he's not talking about your own personal debt in this case. He's going to deal with debt later on in the book of Proverbs, but he's talking about carrying or co-signing a friend's debt. And so, Now, I would think, wouldn't that be a good thing as a believer in Jesus to, to help out another believer? To say, hey, let me co-sign on that for you. Let me give you a loan, my friend. I trust you. We're both Christians. We're both believers. I trust you to pay me back. Let me loan to you. Let me lend. But Solomon is saying, in attempting to help out a friend, you can get tangled up. And he says, don't do it. The second we become involved with anybody financially, we are now bound to them. And we're stuck to them. And no matter how good the friendship is, the problem with this is that loans can cost relationship. It's not just interest that is charged in a loan. Sometimes relationship gets charged. Money messes up fellowship. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, quote, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of law. Do this, Paul says, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. One of the reasons why the leadership at the Bridge Christian Fellowship doesn't know what anybody gives is exactly this, so that we're not bound up financially, so that we will not be in debt to anyone in the fellowship. And let me say this clearly to you all. Our decisions must be made in God's interest and not because of man's interest. I have actually had people in the past, and I may have shared this, but I've had people in churches say, I'm going to withdraw my giving until you do what I think you need to do. 
Really? Well, here at the bridge I say, bring it on. Because I don't know what you give anyway. And it really doesn't concern me. Because we're not going to be beholden to any one person or anyone's giving. It's the Lord who provides. And if you give to the work of this fellowship, you give because the Lord has put it on your heart. And if you choose to stop giving, that's between you and God too. And it's none of my business. The nice thing is, for our shepherds, that keeps us very free to make godly decisions and not man-driven decisions. But this whole issue of finance, and it's amazing that Solomon comes right out of the gate and says, don't do it. Don't get bound up. Whether even a brother or a sister, a friend, a close companion, don't get stuck in a financial agreement with them. Now, I was reading this and I'm thinking, yeah, but shouldn't we help each other out? Aren't we supposed to help out a brother or a sister in need? Well, Jesus, the greater than Solomon, pushes it a step further. He says in Luke 6.35, Lent, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And so if you desire your relationships with one another, if we desire relationships that are free and untangled, the best thing we can do is give, don't lend. If you're going to help someone out, help them out with no strings attached, and the relationship will remain healthy. Whenever we attach strings to it, our self-interest will tend to get in the way. Now there's a spiritual principle here that's even bigger. This is a way to maintain good relationships and healthy uh, financial thinking. But the spiritual principle is, is much bigger. We were in the car there in the middle of Mandau City in Cebu in the Philippines crazy, crazy place to be is in a car in Mandau City in the Philippines. It's just nuts. Thank you. Brian gives me an amen. It's crazy. Ben, you remember. It's, it's absolutely insane. We pull up to a stop sign and, and what's, well not really a stop sign, we just stopped. There really are no stop signs or stop lights or anything else. But we stopped because other cars were going across and you kind of take your turn and force your way out. And as we sat there, children began to show up from all over the place. Little kids running around, coming up. And this one little girl, I will never forget this, came walking between the cars and over. She was probably about that tall. And she had a hump on her back. Her spine was bowed out. Boy, eight inches, ten inches from her back. It was it was really amazing. And, and she came up to the car window. And we're all sitting there in this air-conditioned car. Big, fat, dumb Americans. No offense, guys. And, <laughs> and she starts rapping on the window and holding up her hand. And they were all beggar children. And they're banging on the window. You know, it's, it's a very different thing. Here in the United States, they sit there with a nice cardboard sign and we don't have to pay attention to them. We can just drive right on by. They're rapping on the window and we're looking at each other and, and just going, what do we do? What do we do here? I mean, really, are we going to... I mean, we were all just kind of... <laughs> frozen. Brian finally rolls down his window and, and handed her some pesos and, and she she went off. But this was, how long were we there? Five minutes? Forever. It felt like forever, didn't it? Just sitting there and, and looking at this and, and not even, we didn't even have anywhere to file this. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking about, we didn't have anything to give her. What I wanted to give her was surgery. You know, what I wanted to do was let's get all 1,700 of these kids, let's adopt them and bring them home and give them something, a life. Because we can uh, stick a peso in their hands 
They're going to be right back at the next time the car stopped, begging again and knocking. They're going to be out there the next day and the day after that. And we had so little to offer. And I remember Peter's response to the beggar. In fact, I think we talked about it that afternoon. What did Peter do? He's walking by the gate that's called Beautiful in Acts chapter 3. Let me read the story to you. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother womb, mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. So here we are at the beautiful gate of the temple, people going up to prayer, and a very ugly thing is going on. A lame man is lying there begging. We're told he was there in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began to ask to receive alms. Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk! Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, i got to insert something here that I believed happened that the Bible doesn't tell us happened. So this is completely my supposition. I think this lame man knew who Jesus was. I think he believed in Jesus. I think he already had had contact with Jesus at some point. And when he heard the name Jesus, faith welled up in his heart. I'll tell you why I believe that in just a moment. But it's because of the faith that welled up in his heart that his ankles became strong. He began leaping and walking and praising the Lord. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now what was the point of this healing? That's the key here. The point of the healing was not because Peter didn't have enough coins in his pocket. He wasn't short on shekels, and so he thought, well, i got nothing else, let's heal the guy. The point of the healing was not to prove his power now. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus, I will show that I am powerful to heal just like Jesus was. That wasn't the point either. So what was the point? Verse 11. While the man was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. And when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. That's why I think the man already had contact with Jesus. Because Peter said it's the basis of faith in the name Jesus Christ that this man was healed. Not Peter's faith. Perhaps some of Peter's faith. Perhaps John's faith too. But there had to be faith in the heart of that man. Where did it come from? Did he just hear the name of Jesus and the Spirit revealed to him, possibly? Or had he seen Jesus and heard Jesus teaching at other times and think he's got to have been the Son of Man? And when given the opportunity to believe, boom, he locked in. Often that's how evangelism works. Someone's already heard of Jesus. It just took you saying, will you believe? To make it click. 
And so here he is, and, and Peter says it's on the basis of the name of Jesus, faith in the name, and the faith which comes through him has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. But that's still not the reason why this miracle happened. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, Peter, in his second big sermon, says, Repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by His mouth of His holy prophets from the ancient time. Peter goes on talking to them. You know what happened that day? 2,000 more people gave their lives to Jesus. That's why the man was healed. That was the reason for the giving of healing to this man. Peter had nothing else to give. And I think about that, and I think about the children in Cebu, and I think about all the people around here who are still lost, and what comes to my heart is the only thing we really have to offer people. The only thing that is of lasting value is eternal salvation by the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to give. Now we can get involved in ministries and our, the homeless ministry that Brian leads is incredibly important. But it's not important because we're giving someone a lunch or a jacket for their back. It's important because the message of Jesus Christ is being preached. I'll tell you something else. There's a group in Oak Harbor, I won't say who, but who do a, a homeless feeding program, but they want to stay generic. And we're not coupled up with them because they don't want to preach the gospel of Jesus when they're feeding. They just want to feed. Well, to me, that's, a, that's, that's giving something that's just going to burn. Calories. <laughs> That'll just eventually go away. We have the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we've got, gang. It's not something that we've done. It's not something that we've created or generated. It's not this church. It's not this highly comfortable seat that you're sitting in right now. We have the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to give. And it's so simple. Peter heals the man and then preaches to the multitudes that the multitudes might hear the gospel and in that day 2,000 people were saved. Now, if you don't hear a lot about this from me in the coming weeks, someone slap me and say, what did you say you were going to tell us about? Okay, We have got to wrap our hearts around the gospel. We have got to be more intentional about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Rick's coming back all fired up from the Philippines. Yes, I am. Because we've got to be intentional. Seven and a half years we've been here. And I shared at staff meeting today, by all accounts, uh, people in the area say, hey, that's a pretty successful situation, going from 20 people in the barn to, you know, two services on a Sunday morning. That's pretty good. Isn't that successful? No, actually it's not. Successful is when there are more lost people here getting saved than there are saved people going out to get the lost. That, in my mind, is successful. When the growth that's happening isn't transfer growth from other churches, no offense if you transfer, hey, I'm glad you're here. Praise God, you can roll up your sleeves and help us. But when the growth that we see here is because people are being saved by the gospel of Jesus, that's success. That's kingdom growth. That's what we've got to get to. Paul says, do this knowing the time. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And so I've been reminded pretty dramatically of the urgency of the gospel of Jesus. That's what's, it's on my heart. That's what God has put in there, and I can't stop thinking about this. 
We have got to be intentional. How can we better get the word out? What must we do as a fellowship to mobilize with the gospel of Jesus because the days are short? Now, with that in mind, we move from personal finance, verse 6, back in Proverbs chapter 6, to personal laziness. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now, I don't know this, but I kind of wonder if Solomon perhaps has a couple of lazy kids. Who's he talking to here? Get out of bed and get to work. Have you ever noticed how quickly laziness becomes exhausting? This is the second field where wisdom is being planted tonight. The exhaustion of lethargy. The exhaustion of lethargy. Occasionally I allow myself a lazy day. There will be days that I have off and I'll say, okay, today I'm not doing anything. And it's amazing that those days I am more exhausted. I just want a nap. Halfway through the morning of doing nothing, I have no energy to do anything. Have you found that to be true? If you're tired and you begin to do things, it's, it kind of livens you up. But if you're just lazing around doing nothing, you just eh, you don't want to. You just don't want to do anything <laughs> because lethargy is exhausting. And the longer we're lazy, and this principle holds true in life, the more lazy we are, the more lethargic we become. And Solomon's very big on this. He really gets on to this area. And that's why I, I do think at least one of his kids must have been a lazy bum. Because no less than 13 times in the book of Proverbs, he addresses who he calls the sluggard. In fact, listen to this. Over in chapter 26, verse 12, and I think there's probably a sermon in this, so you'll hear it again. But chapter 26, verse 12, he writes, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road! A lion is in the open square! What does that mean? Well, he's coming up with an excuse not to go out. There's difficult life outside. I might get attacked. Best just to stay home and keep my feet in bed. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. I love that. Creak! And back to sleep. Creak! And sleeping again. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. That's, isn't that hilarious? He can't even eat a bowl of cereal. He's so lazy. I'm just going to leave it there. Just let it rest for a minute. I love this. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer like one who takes a dog by the ears as he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. And then he goes on. So Solomon addresses this issue of laziness. And he's saying it's a bad thing. Now we need to not get confused because often we talk about rest. Rest and laziness are two different things. Because the Lord says in repentance and rest is your strength. Rest is one thing. Laziness is a completely different thing. Laziness is just putting off. It's not doing. It's lying around. It's when things need to get done and not getting it done. Rest is knowing when you've done enough and knowing when to stop and be at peace. But here this idea, there's another great gospel principle here. 
Okay, we can apply the principle of not being lazy to our lives, and that's a wise principle, and it's a good one. Don't be lazy. Get about the business of life. Work hard. Roll up your sleeves. You know, but the gospel principle is bigger. Just as the ant is aware of the summer and the harvest, so should we be. We should be like the ant. We're aware. We should be gathering for the harvest, getting ready. Jesus said in Matthew 24:32, "Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is here, right at the door. The parable of the fig tree. If you've been here any amount of time, we've talked about this many times. I believe the fig tree is Israel and is a picture of Israel. I think there are many things in Scripture that that bear that up, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But know this, Israel became a nation again, miraculously, as was prophesied in Isaiah, miraculously, a nation in a day in 1948. And Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its leaves become tender and green, summer's right around the corner. Well, if summer's around the corner from the fig tree blossoming, then harvest time is right on its heels. And I think we're somewhere between summer and harvest right now. In the grand scheme of things, somewhere between the harvest and the summer. Late summer, perhaps. Ready for the harvest. Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And that is so true. There is a vast field of lost people right around this little barn. But the workers, where are we? Are we going to hole up in this barn? For our own sake, for our own comfort, to minister one to another just in this body and keep our heads tucked in here? I think we need to start praying this prayer. Lord, send workers to the harvest. And as we pray that prayer, perhaps we should be asking, and am I one of those? Jesus said in John 4.35, Do not say yet there are four months and then comes the harvest. No, He says, do you not say that? There are four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for the harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. I'll tell you something, when you leave the country and you spend even a few days in another country and you look back at America and consider it, through the lens of a different culture, you see some things that are a little disturbing. Now, I love my country, don't get me wrong, and I love living here, and I love the church in America, and I think there are great things still going on within the body of Christ in America. But I I began to wonder last week, has our American faith become sluggish with the Gospel? Have we become lazy with the Gospel of Jesus Christ? To where, in many churches, the Word isn't even being taught, but even in churches where the Word is being taught, we're more interested in what we take in than what we're giving out. We're more concerned with what's going on in our children's ministry than how our children's ministry might minister to someone outside. Or we're more interested in having our own needs prayed for than we are praying for those who are dying in their sins. Have we gotten sluggish? With the gospel. And more personally, gang, ask yourself am I more internal with my faith than I am external? Is it more about what happens for me and what I can glean and take in than it is what I'm giving out? The gospel, the gospel, it demands to be spoken. 
verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. In other words, (laughs) need and poverty will attack while we're being lazy, while we're sitting back. It doesn't take much to slip, slip into a sleepy apathy when it comes to our faith. And where the church and the gospel are concerned, apathy can look very busy. It can look very busy, very active. Lots of ministry into and for this body. The danger comes when our senses get dulled to the lost. And when our feelings and our concerns and our issues outweigh the saving of lost people. That's apathetic where the gospel is concerned. You know, we think we're feeding our hearts But the truth is, we're under an attack of lethargy. So we give. And we give and we give the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now again, I I realize Solomon is speaking to his sons about physical laziness. But remember, the physical teachings, especially of the Old Testament, have spiritual application in the church age. The things that we learned physically going on back then are spiritual to us and have spiritual meaning and application for us. And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Awake, sleeper! Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what is the will of the Lord? I can tell you in one sentence. Our salvation to His glory. That's the will of God. The salvation of man to the glorification of His name. And once we understand that that is the will of the Lord, anything else that we do that doesn't focus us in that direction and doesn't call people to salvation in Jesus Christ for the purpose of glorifying God, anything else is a waste of time. You know, if if you are in Christ tonight, if you consider yourself a Christian, it's because someone refused to be lulled into a state of spiritual apathy. It's because someone in your life cared enough to say, you really should believe in Jesus. Someone cared enough to speak the Gospel to you. That's why you're here. Someone loved you enough to get out of their bed and energetically offer the hope of our salvation. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.6, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, the helmet is something nobody can miss when we're wearing it. When you're talking to someone... They're looking right at that. What's that thing on your head? That's my hope, man. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Going on, verse 12. We enter another field here. A worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly, instantly, He will be broken, and there will be no healing. Number three, I call this the estrangement of wickedness. The estrangement of wickedness. Solomon gives a physical description here of a spiritual problem. He describes a few things, five things, 
A perverse mouth, first of all. A perverse mouth. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that if it's coming out of the mouth, it's revealing something in the heart. And a perverse mouth reveals what's really going on inside. I remember as a kid, those of you who know me know that I love to joke. And I love a good joke, and I love to laugh, and I love good humor. But there's a problem with that, because a lot of the jokes out there are not good jokes. And I'm not talking about my puns. A lot of the jokes out there are shouldn't be told. They're nasty, they're dirty, they're filthy. And as a kid growing up in Southern California, I heard them all. Probably told most of them. And it was always in conflict because I knew as a follower of Jesus Christ that's not the thing that should be coming out of my mouth, but it was. And it was a real hard issue for a long time for me as a kid. And then I came across this verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. Wow, it was like a brick to the head. Coarse joking. Telling dirty jokes. And when I first came across that verse, it it stunned me. Because I realized, you know, I can't out of the same mouth that praises God offer filthy jokes. Even that. So a perverse mouth, first sign of wickedness in the heart. Secondly, winking eyes. Winking eyes. What does that mean? It means, hey, we understand each other, right? You know, Spence, you and I, we're, we're on the same page. That's what a winking eye is. Hey, I got you. We're together on this. And Christians do this. We wink the eye at one another about maybe a movie we shouldn't see, but eh, we're both on the same page. We know both know we're forgiven. Let's just do this together. You know, We're both in the Lord together, so as long as I'm not sharing the dirty joke with a non-Christian, that's cool. As long you know, winking the eye. We're in this together. And Solomon is saying that's what the wicked man is doing. He's trying to rope you and saying, hey, we're on the same page. We're cool, right? I know what I did bothers you a little bit, but yeah, it's me. And it's you. We're, we're good. We're okay. Winking eyes. Number three, signaling feet. Which is interesting because Les likes to say if you want to know what someone believes, watch where their feet go. And your feet are like a signal. The word signal there in the Hebrew is malal, and it literally means to speak. Speaking feet. Feet that talk. Feet that express what's really in the heart. Now by contrast, Paul says in Romans 10.14, how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Oh, there it is again, the Gospel. And you can have feet that are either signaling wickedness in the heart or feet that are bringing the gospel of peace to people. The wicked is signaling where he's headed with his feet. Number four, pointing fingers. The literal translation of pointing fingers down there in verse 13 is teaching fingers. Fingers that instruct. Fingers that point out a way to go. A perverse mouth, winking eyes, signaling feet, pointing or teaching, I would say false teaching fingers. And all the culmination of this is number five, what we see here, the perversity of the heart. A perverse heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And the end result of all of this, these the perverse mouth, winking eyes, signaling feet, pointing fingers, the perverse heart, the end result is that wickedness has its worst effect in spreading strife. Note that in verse 14. Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife? Down in verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to Him. Let me explain something here. The God of love hates. Did you realize that? This is not the only place in the Scripture that tells us the God who is the God of love, God who is love in and of Himself, hates. But the truth is, love always hates those things which do damage to the things that love loves. Do you understand that? Love hates those things which harm or damage His loved ones. God loves us so much that He absolutely hates sin because He sees what sin does. He knows how it affects us. And there's a Hebrew poetic pattern here in verse 16. Six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven that are an abomination to Him, in which the final thing in the list is the most highly emphasized. That's how this poetic pattern works. In Proverbs chapter 30, at the end of the book, the seer named Agur uses a three-four pattern. He'll say several times, three things this, but the fourth thing this. And the fourth thing is always the big deal. And so here where Solomon says six things... Six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to Him, it means number seven is by far the worst. Number seven is the culmination of the six. Number seven is the big deal. Job does the same thing. In Job 5.19, he says, From six troubles He will deliver you. Even in seven, He will not touch you. But here's this idea of a culminating list. Six things that God hates, but the seventh is the full expression of everything on the list. Read it with me. Verse 17. Haughty eyes, number one. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. He hates this. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Five, feet that run rapidly to evil. Number six, a false witness who utters lies. And it all comes to the big one. And one who spreads strife among brothers. God absolutely hates strife and division more than anything else on that list. Check that out. God hates strife more than murder. God hates strife more than lying. Or hearts that devise wickedness. Strife, division, dividing up. God absolutely and unequivocally hates this more than anything else. That's the estrangement of wickedness. It divides people. Wisdom advances unity. Wisdom always draws together and unifies people, but wickedness estranges brothers. Psalm 133, a song of the sense of David, he wrote, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Oh, unity. Unity is a thing produced by wisdom. Strife by wickedness. 
Are you estranged from a brother or sister in the Lord? Are you in a place right now where there's division or strife between you and another believer? Seek reconciliation. Seek forgiveness. There is wisdom in it. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Jesus said in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they may also be in us. So where wickedness estranges, wisdom brings together, wisdom unifies. Now, number four, Solomon moves from estrangement to encouragement. Number four is the encouragement of a parent. Verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you wake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, kids, pay attention. Solomon says reproof for discipline is the way of life. Reproof for discipline is a way of life. But you know, reproof is hard to take. Does anyone here enjoy being reproved or rebuked? Anyone wake up in the morning and go, boy, I really hope the boss gets on my case today. I really hope my commander has a few tough words for me. I really hope my spouse, when I come into the kitchen, lays it out on the line and really gets on my case. Because I really need some good rebuke. No one wants it. No one enjoys being rebuked. It's hard to take, but you know what? As hard as rebuke is to take, it's hard to give. It's hard to rebuke someone, even when you know it needs to be done. And so this, this word reproof, reproofs are discipline, for discipline or the way of life. The word reproof here in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's tokechat. And tokechat means reasoned punishment. Now check that out, because that's significant. It's thoughtful correction. It's not rebuking out of anger. It's not flying off the handle. It's doing so thoughtfully. It's, it's reasonable correction. It's handling the situation with spiritual consideration. With an eye to the outcome, not an eye to just venting. Now as a parent, when it comes to punishment and discipline, there are times I just want to vent. You know, I just want to go off because it makes me feel better to blah, get it all out. And yeah, go to your room. <laughs> but what's the desired outcome? You know, I used to love the Cosby show back in the 80s. The sweaters were horrific, but I liked the show. <laughs> and what I liked about it was that Cliff Huxtable, Cliff and Claire Huxtable, they, the, the show had this great way of them coming up with creative discipline for their kids. They were the most creative parents. And I I used to watch that and think, that's how I want to parent my kids. Like a TV show. You know? (laughs) I just I want to be creative like that. Because they always taught the lesson and they always had this great way of doing it. You know, we don't need Bill Cosby's help. And we don't need a TV show. Solomon says the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. Does that sound familiar? 
What is a lamp and a light? The Word. The Word. Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. The Word is the lamp and the light that Solomon is talking about. In fact, he says the commandment is a lamp and the teaching, literally Torah, is light. And so he would say to parents and he would say to grandparents and he would say to kids, here's the key. You want to be creative and disciplined? You want to reprove correctly? Use the Word. Use the Word of God. Now that doesn't mean that you say, okay, today, kid, you're going to memorize the entire book of Job for your punishment. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's saying the keys to effective discipline are found in the Word of God. And this is what we draw from. And this is our manual for parenting, for grandparenting. And kids, understand that when you are corrected by your parents, it's a good thing. They're not doing it to be mean. They're doing it because they understand that you are on a path of life and they want you to walk the path that is righteous and good, not the way of the wicked. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, and I would add the woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible is the best place to go for thoughtful correction. Now, brace yourselves. Verse 23, going on, takes us into the last primary section, and it will carry us all the way through chapter 7 tonight. The expense of adultery. The expense of adultery. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. You may be familiar with that word. We've talked about it. Zur in the Hebrew, the strange woman. The adulteress is the strange woman. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. They're probably false anyway. (laughs) The adulteress. He's going to go on now through the rest of chapter 6 and on through chapter 7 and warn against the adulteress and warn against adultery. And those of you in a sound, healthy marriage might say, oh, okay, well then I can check out until we get to chapter 8. Don't do it. Because this is not, again, just about the physical act of adultery or physical sexual immorality. Remember, the things that we learn physically from the Hebrew Scriptures have spiritual application as well. And you need to watch for this. Remember that adultery in the book of Proverbs is the opposite of wisdom. Not foolishness. It's not foolishness and wisdom. It's adultery and wisdom. It's the adulterous woman and woman as, and wisdom as a woman. Adultery is the opposite. Why is that? Remember, we talked about this. Wisdom leads to the Lord. Adultery lures away from the Lord. And so adultery is, according to Solomon, the opposite of wisdom. The lure, the thing that draws you away. That's the opposite. Now going on, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. (laughs) I like that. Dude, you're dumb as bread. 
That's one way to take that. You're as stupid as bread if you're going to allow yourself to get into an affair situation. And an adulteress, an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Now the bread comment is probably not saying that you're dumb as a loaf of bread. What he's probably saying is that immorality is costly to the point that you will be reduced to having nothing but a loaf of bread to your name. The picture here is of a very poor man who's got nothing else. All he's got is his little loaf of bread. And that's all that's left because he has chosen to go down the foolish road. He has led to abject poverty. And it's all that's left in his possession. But note this, it says, an adulteress hunts for the precious life. What is the precious life? What is that? The Hebrew word has another translation there. The beloved. The beloved. The adulteress is on the hunt for the beloved. That is someone who is loved by someone else. The adulteress is going after now a man who already has a beloved or in the case of a woman, a woman who already has a beloved. The literal understanding here is the adulteress is going after the wife or the husband of someone who is already the beloved of that person. I am Cheryl's beloved. And I love that. It's nice in our world to have one person. I'm her beloved. And she is mine. And I don't have to be your beloved. It doesn't matter. You can look at me and say, you are just a dork. And I'd say, great. That's fine with me. I have my beloved back home. I have value to her. Now check this out. Some of you are sitting here going, well, great, Rick. Great, you're married. Yeah, you are also the beloved. Married or not, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are the beloved. You're the beloved of God. You're the precious ones of the Lord. But realize this. The adulteress would have you. You're the beloved, but the adulteress is hunting for you because you are the beloved. The hunt is on. What are you talking about? 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And who does the devil most want to devour? Well, lost people. I disagree. I think the devil wants to devour saved people. Now, when I was younger, I used to think that once a person gave their life to Christ, Satan gave up because you're saved now, so I'm just going to go after people who are not saved. No. Satan wants to undermine the faith of believers because he wants to do anything he can to discredit the Lord. It's not about casting people into hell for him. It's about undermining the glory of God any way he can do it. And if that means keeping someone in a lost state, great. But if that means undermining the faith of a Christian, he's going to go after you. And he is going to be on the hunt for the precious ones, for the beloved of God. It's not just about causing sinners to remain sinners. It's about trying to make the righteous fall. And if Satan can make you fall, he's had a good day. And and you know, he's got to know as well as we do that once we're saved by grace, we're saved. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We have salvation. So we are secure in God's hands, but if He can make us sin anyway, alright! It's been a good day in Satan's book. Satan just wants to damage the precious ones of God. Now, consider this. When a fellow Christian sins, 
when someone falls big time to some kind of ugly sin, whether it's a sexual sin or a chemical sin or a financial sin or what have you. When a Christian falls, perhaps understanding that we are the beloved, maybe rather than jumping on the judgment bandwagon, what if we chose to view each other as the beloved? What if when a friend in the Lord sins, instead of going, oh, and jumping back, what if we said, oh, precious one, you're the beloved of God. I know what happened is ugly. I know the choice was sinful, but you're the beloved. And God loves you, and I love you, and I will stand with you. What if we saw each other that way? Paul said in Galatians 6, one of my favorite verses, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Looking to yourself so you too will not be tempted, but bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love each other. What if we really viewed each other as the beloved? then I think our falling and our failure and our sin would not frighten us away so quickly. We would more quickly be grabbing hold of each other and saying, hang on, let me walk with you. Let's pray through this. Be reconciled to the Lord. Discipline to protect the precious ones from sin and reconciliation to restore the precious ones from sin. Because when it comes to spiritual adultery, gang, no one's immune. None of us here are immune to adultery. And gentlemen, especially, hear me, as one man to another, none of us are immune to adultery, period. Pastor Rick said he could commit adultery. Hey, I have a sin nature. I don't plan to. I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that I'm never alone with a woman other than my wife. And I will stand on that. But could I? Am I capable of? Sure I am. Are you kidding? If I don't realize I'm capable of any sin that's out there, I'm a fool. So are you, by the way. Not in realizing I'm... But that you're capable (laughs) of sinning. We've got to recognize that. We are not immune to the advance of the adulterer whose name is Satan or to the hellish outcome of accepting His advances. Read on. Verse 27. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Really? You think you're immune? You think you can get away? You're the first person in history who can get away with sin and not have it fry you? No way! Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Well, Rick, I've seen those movies of people in India walking on the hot coals and their feet aren't burned. Yeah, because their feet are complete calluses. Because they've done it so much, there's nothing but callous, hard souls to their feet. You want to have a calloused, hard soul? Consciences seared, as with a branding iron, Paul writes. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, who whoever touches her will not go unpunished, or literally will not be innocent. You can't get away with it. You're not going to get away with it. By the way, this is where we get the whole idea of if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. That little phrase came right there out of of verse 27. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? If you play with fire, you're going to get burned, period. Verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steals. 
to satisfy himself when he's hungry, but when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. That's, that's Levitical law. Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, give that law. If you steal, even if you're impoverished, if you're hungry, and you go steal a loaf of bread so that you can have something to eat, you're not going to be executed for it, but you have to pay back seven times what you stole. So Solomon's saying, there's even an amount of understanding that's given if someone steals something to fill a need. We understand there's punishment, but, but we get it. We understand that sometimes we do things. But... The one who commits adultery, verse 32, with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace will find him, and his reproach will not be blotted out, for jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. This is talking about the husband who's been wronged by the guy who has an affair with his wife. He is not going to just go, all right, just pay back sevenfold and we'll be cool. Give me seven loaves of bread because you slept with my wife and we'll be all right. It's not going to happen. Rick, what are you getting at here? Explicitly speaking, adultery always causes pain. Always brings about reproduction. You can't get away from it. You cannot hide from it. A little pleasure now results in a lifetime of pain in every circumstance. But what the world fails to understand is that adultery and sexual immorality are about far more than the physical body. Note this again in verse 32. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. The word himself is literally his soul. Adultery destroys the soul. Jim gave a great example on Sunday of the heart being like... um, What's that stuff that tears? Velcro. The heart's like Velcro. And he gets up near another heart and he goes... But when you pull it away, it pulls some of that heart with it. And some of your heart gets left. And every sexual liaison in a person's life is like ripping Velcro. You are losing part of your heart and you're ripping part of theirs. You're destroying your own soul. I mean, Solomon is so absolutely clear. Again, I wish, had we all as young children heard this and understood it, maybe we would have made different decisions. But there's another thing going on here. Again, that's explicitly, that's the obvious physical ramifications, even spiritual, of what happens when a person commits adultery or has unsanctified sexual activity. That's any sex outside of marriage. Marriage of a woman and a a man. Verse 32 again when he says, He who would destroy himself does it. You're destroying your own soul. Implicitly, there's something else here. And implicitly, we come right back to the place of the Spirit. He talks about in here the day of vengeance. That's an interesting phrase. The day of vengeance is coming. The vengeance of a husband against those or the one who has hunted his beloved. Well, who are God's precious ones? We are. Yeah, but... but. But we've been grafted in. Who originally are God's beloved? Israel is. Israel. 
The day of vengeance is coming, the vengeance of a husband, God, against those who have hunted His beloved. There is a chosen people, the people of Israel, precious and beloved of God, a people for whom He is utterly jealous. Listen to this, Isaiah 34, verse 8. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, the Jewish people. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads that verse, rolls up the scroll, and sits down. And all the people in the synagogue are looking at Him. Okay, what? why'd you stop there? What's up? And Jesus says, Today... This Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? You're saying, Jesus, that the the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me? That's you? You're claiming Messiahship? But what's interesting to me is where Jesus stopped. He stopped mid-verse in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2. What continues on after that is the following. Not only is the Spirit of the Lord God upon him to do all those wonderful things he described, but and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped there because it wasn't the day of vengeance, not yet. In Jesus' day, it was coming to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners. We're in that age right now, the age of grace. But he will also bring the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And that's Israel. But Jesus says He will not spare in the day of vengeance for the one who hunts His beloved. You don't want to be on the side of the hunt of Israel. You want to be the one praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Now quickly, Proverbs 7 continues in this strain. We're going to read this quickly. It's, it's, it needs to be read together. There's an explanation here of the entrapment now of the adulteress. Verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching is the apple of your eye. That that is the pupil. You know how we protect the pupil against anything. In fact, the eyelid is the fastest muscle we have. It moves quicker than any other muscle to protect the eye. And he says, keep my commandments that way. Protect them. My teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to... (laughs) This is what... Rachel promised yesterday to do with our babysitting instructions. It cracked me up. We call, we're out, and, and Rachel gets to the house, and she's reading over the instructions, and I, and I said, live those instructions, Rachel. Keep those instructions. And she said, I'll write them on the tablet of my heart. <laughs> Solomon says, do this with the commandments. Do this with the Word. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend that they may keep you from an adulteress, or from Zur, from falling away, from turning away, from the foreigner who flatters with her words, for out of my house I looked out through the lattice, 
And I saw among the naive, or the simple-minded, and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Solomon says, boys, I was looking out the window and I saw this idiot walking down the street. Passing through the street near her corner, the corner of the adulteress, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in darkness. Notice the progression there. Starts out at twilight, and then it becomes evening, and then it becomes the middle of the night and darkness, and this is the pattern of the one who is being lured. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. And she's boisterous and rebellious. The word boisterous there literally means she's dressed in a loud, flashy way. She is projecting what her intentions are. And her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And so she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says, watch this, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today, today I've paid my vows. What? What is Solomon seeing? I mean, what's what's going on here? Gang, the harlot, this strange, luring woman, has just come back from church. This woman is saying, I was just at the temple. You know, paying my offerings, paying my vows, I just made my sacrifices, I just came from temple. And the idiot buys it. Oh, oh, she's a Christian like me. She's a believer too. Cool. We're on the same page. Wink, wink. We're, we're together. And this, she understands me and I understand her. The idiot buys it. And here's where the picture goes beyond the simple adultery, simple sexual immorality, and it goes right to the heart of the matter. What's really going on here is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. False teaching. The lure that is so strong in this day and age. This woman coming back from temple. The warning signs are there. (laughs) She's flashy. She's tempting. She's luring and lurid. And the fool doesn't see it. He's not dialed in. He's not picking up on all the warning signs. He just hears the words of her mouth. Hey, I just came from church. Right on! And in verse 15... Therefore, I have come out to meet you, she says, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. And I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. Bible students, what is Egypt a picture of in the Bible? The world. She talks like a believer, but she looks like the world. Beware. The warning signs are always there. It's not the words of a believer that you listen to. It is the behavior that that shows what's going on in the heart. It's that outward expression that lets you know what's really happening inside. The world. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Spiritual adultery offers the pleasures and the prosperity of this life. That's one of the ways you can know right off the bat, if it's spiritual adultery, if it's false teaching, it's offering some kind of prosperity now. You know what Brother Yun says? (laughs) The Chinese house church guy, in and out of prison four times. He says, don't pray against our hardship, pray for it. 
Don't pray that Chinese Christians won't be martyred. Pray that we will. Don't pray that our persecution ceases. Pray that it continues. Why would you say that? Because that's why the house church movement in China is 10 million strong and counting. They don't have time to be caught off their guard like we do in comfortable Christian America. Where it's easy. How hard was it for you to come to the barn tonight? Well, I had a long day, Pastor. I'm not talking about that. Did anybody really try and stand in your way and say, if you enter the barn, you may go to prison tonight? If you associate with those Christians, you will be punished tonight. I haven't faced that. And we live in a nation where so much preaching is, oh, you know, God just wants the best for you. We say, you make all things work together for my good. He does. But that doesn't mean He makes all things good. Ultimately, yes. But that doesn't mean all things are easy. That doesn't mean that we're meant to be comfortable. He make all things work together for my good. For those who are called according to your purpose. The good's coming. Guys like Brother Yoon, they understand that. The good's on the way. But it's not for right now. Right now, right now, our job is to get the word out. And we live in a spiritually adulterous generation. Verse 17, he says, she says, I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Oh, I like cinnamon. I like that. Come, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Man, if you listen to pop songs lately, it's just so sickening. That's all they're about. Let's just make love. And we'll drink our fill. And that's what she's saying. It's good, man. Just just enjoy it. And we start to buy the lie. Let's delight ourselves with caresses. Uh, for my husband's not home. See, he's gone on a long journey. So she's married too. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. In other words, he's got plenty of travel money. He's away for a while. Let's just enjoy each other now. Come on. I came from church too. It's love. Doesn't God teach us to love one another? And with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Let me tell you something. In verse 21, she persuades, she, she, persuades, she entices, she flatters, she, she seduces. You know what? If you buy the book, um, The Heavenly Man, you're not going to enjoy it. I just want to tell you right now. You're not going to enjoy the book. It's brutal. It is not an easy read. It's not fun to read. It's engaging because you're like, I can't believe this is going on now. But it's not easy and fun and light and fluffy. I can give you a list of books that will do that for you if you're looking for fluff. There's plenty of it. Suddenly, he follows her. Who? The idiot. The loaf of bread. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters, that is in chains, to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver... As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
If you've ever been in an adulterous relationship, listen. It will not cost you your life. Because Jesus Christ is capable to wash you clean by His blood. What will cost a person their life is spiritual adultery. That is a rejection of Jesus Christ. A rejection of the Gospel. Did Rich just say it was okay to commit adultery? No! I'm saying there is a much greater issue at hand than the sins that we commit. And it is the heart that we have inside. Explicitly, sexual immorality is rampant in our world. Implicitly, spiritual immorality is luring good, precious people to death. We just read this last week. Let me read it to you quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. The word difficult there is in the Greek, chalepos, and it literally means perilous, violent, dangerous. And then Paul describes what perilous, violent, dangerous times will look like. He says, Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, that's silly women, And it's not just women, by the way, guys. It's idiots who get captivated, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And spiritual adultery in the church today does that. It causes Christians to always be learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Never having lives changed. Never radically altered. Spiritual adultery. How do we recognize it? How do we keep our eyes open to it? To false teaching and spiritual adultery? Well, ask yourself these questions. Does it offer you the comforts of Egypt? Is it teaching that says, you can have, you know, your best life now? Does it entice you with pleasures and sweet, earthy smells? Does it just feel good all the time? Does it lure us away from what we know to be the truth of the Gospel. Verse 24, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. I mean, this is serious business. You read this and you go, that's got to be more than just an adulterous woman. It's got to be bigger than that. We're talking about something that lures people down to the chambers of death itself. What could he be talking about here? My friends, it's the call of the spiritual adulteress. It's a siren call. And it's invading the church. The siren call, that beautiful song. Remember the the Greek myth of the sirens who would sing their songs and sailors would hear them and they'd be beautiful songs until they were lured to the place where their ship crashed on the rocks and they all died. And that's spiritual adultery. It's the most dangerous call being given today. It goes back to the earliest days of earth 
in a place called Babel, Babel, Babylon. It was a mystery religion founded all the way back then and it's still at work today and it's going to be destroyed at the end. Revelation 14, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Revelation 16, 19. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Revelation 17, 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. It's the spiritual adulteress. And in the last days, in the tribulation, it will manifest itself as a one world religion. I won't get all into that tonight. I'd like to. I'll wait. But it's spiritual adultery, and it has been in play since the days of Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, look it up, all the way to today, spiritual adultery trying to lure the precious ones away from their husband away from the Lord. Wow. Now, for you ladies who feel like the fairer sex has been singled out for all the negatives in this couple of chapters, listen. Verse 1 of chapter 8 reads, Does not wisdom call, and understanding lift up her voice, wisdom as a woman? And we're going to talk about that maybe next week, maybe the following Sunday. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would keep us from spiritual adultery. I pray that You would sharpen our minds, Lord, and sensitize our spirits to be seekers of the truth and the truth only. To recognize the sound of our Savior's voice as sheep to hear our Good Shepherd calling. Jesus, You said Your sheep know the sound of Your voice and we listen to You and that we desire. And Father, it is my heart's desire that this fellowship be so equipped with sensitive ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. And so motivated with the Gospel of Jesus Christ that we will see a harvest, that we will be workers in the harvest. And that not only will our lives be changed as doers of the Word, but we will see multiple lives changed as people come to faith in Jesus. Father, only Your Spirit can bring this about in us. And so we pray for that now. And we ask for the exertion of Your will among us to Your good pleasure and to Your glory. And I pray these seeds would take root, Lord, in Jesus' name.